кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. Just days after the International Criminal Court issued a war crimes indictment for Vladimir Putin, making him the world's most famous and most wanted fugitive, Chinese President Xi Jinping traveled to Moscow for a state visit, his 40th meeting with the Kremlin leader. And while Xi's visit eased Putin's international isolation and bolstered Sino-Russian efforts to forge an anti-Western international coalition, it appeared to fall short of providing Putin what he most desires, Chinese pledges of military assistance in Russia's war against Ukraine. Because while Xi did offer Putin moral and economic support in the form of increased trade, he offered no offensive weapons, at least not yet. So where is the Sino-Russian partnership going? And what does it, combined with Putin's indictment for war crimes, mean for Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine? Well, stick around, because I got just the guests to help us get a lot smarter and unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown Washington, D.C. is former U.S. State Department official Max Berkman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for International and Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Welcome back to The Vertical, Max. Great to be with you, Brian. Great to have you. And also joining us from downtown D.C. is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So here's my quick hot take on the Sheep Summit. I, I published it in, uh, in the Atlantic uh, for the Atlantic Council yesterday, and what it ba I basically think it illustrates just how dependent upon China that Russia has become since being cut off from global the global financial system, Western markets, and Western technology. It illustrates that while China is willing to toss the Russian economy a lifeline, softening the effect of Western sanctions, Beijing is not willing to go all in with Putin's war against Ukraine, despite his willingness to parrot Moscow's talking points about how the West is to blame for the war. The Sino-Russian relationship is developing on Beijing's terms, and Putin has no choice but to accept that. He is now Xi's junior partner and his vassal. The summit may have taken place in Putin's home turf, but it was crystal clear just exactly who was in charge. This was even evident in the body language. Um, I don't know if you all saw this one joint appearance where she was leaning back confidently in his chair, smiling. Putin was bent forward, fidgeting. His leg was shaking. Um, and so this this, uh, this this body language, I think, pretty much summed it all up. So that's my that's my top of the line take. Uh, what were your first impressions, Jeff and Max? Yeah, thanks. So broadly speaking, I agree with you. You know, I think that um, in terms of concrete commitments, uh, Putin seems to have gotten very little out of this. In some ways, the summit itself was probably the the big deliverable for him. It was a way of showing that uh, China is on Russia's side, that it's not going to, to countenance a, a complete Russian defeat. Um, and the other thing that he got was Xi's, uh, you know, endorsement, if that's the right word, for uh, re-election in 2024. And of course, Xi Jinping is one of the few uh, constituents out there who who really matters as far as uh, as Putin's re-election goes. So I think from that perspective, as far as you know, getting very public Chinese buy-in for staying in power, um, it was pretty significant and. Putin being Putin, I you know imagine that that's a, a pretty important uh, benchmark for him. But in terms of other things, you know, you mentioned weapons, which again, as far as anybody can tell, have not been uh, promised nor delivered beyond some very limited uh, quantities of of arms uh, of uh, small arms that uh, have been reported in the Western press. Um, and then the other thing, uh, energy, where. Um, 
you know, Putin talked about the power of Siberia 2 pipeline. Uh, it wasn't in the communique. She didn't talk about it. Um, so, you know, it sounds like that's still in train, but there's no uh, agreement yet. Presumably the Chinese are still uh, dickering on price. Um, and even assuming that they do get this deal done, you know, it comes in the context of Russia completely losing its primary energy market for the entirety, not just of the post-Soviet period, but even going back to the 1970s and 1980s, right. which is Europe. And as a result, you know, yeah, they, they could end up with this pipeline to, to sell more Russian gas to China. But it's going to be at a price that benefits yeah. China, and it's, it's going, going to be, be discounted, yeah. yeah, and it's going to be done in such a way where Putin's long-term ambition of being kind of a swing provider, where they could arbitrage between markets in Asia and Europe, is just completely off the table. Uh, so they've replaced, um, you know, this this uh, kind of monopsonistic dependence on Europe with a, a monopsonistic dependence on China, which in right. a lot of ways is going to be even worse. Yeah, no, and on the on the endorsement of Putin's uh, quote unquote reelection, what I, my takeaway from that, I was kind of surprised that that was actually even a thing. Um, and the my my takeaway of that is like, why did Putin feel he needed that? Because that was clearly orchestrated. Why did Putin feel he needed Xi's endorsement? Is he that insecure in his power right now? That's the one thing. And the other thing that caught my attention was the they backed off from this limit unlimited friendship yes. of 2022 mm -hmm. and they're talking about this is not a traditional alliance in the cold yeah. war sense what what did you make of that both of those things actually um yeah i mean the, not repeating the friendship with no limits that was in that declaration that they signed a couple of weeks before the invasion of ukraine was really striking mm -hmm. um now you know you can say well okay this is a it's a rhetorical trope and you know, it doesn't actually mean anything in, in practice, but I, I think it is significant, especially because, you know, in the Chinese diplomatic practice, these labels really do have meaning. And there are, you know, entire hierarchies of how the Chinese government characterizes different levels of partnerships with, with other states. And the one that they have with Russia, that they've been using this term for a long time, is a comprehensive strategic partnership of coordination. Uh, and that is like the, the sort of top of the hierarchy of, of these Chinese diplomatic levels. And so this no limits partnership was a new thing uh, that they rolled out in February 2020 or 2022. Uh, and the fact that they didn't repeat it now is, is pretty suggestive. And you yeah. know, if you're not saying that there are no limits by inference, you can suggest that there are limits, even if they're right. not going to publicly come out and, and say what they are. Um, as far as the endorsement thing, it, yeah, it, it, it's, I, I was, Kind of struck by this too, because I mean, why was it one, necessary? Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, it, it, as far as we know, and we obviously don't have great clarity into the bulldogs fighting under the rug in in Moscow and the rest of Russia, but it doesn't appear that anybody is there in a position who would challenge Putin's decision if he does choose to run again in twenty, you know, quote unquote, run again in twenty twenty four, but. Clearly, Putin felt that it. it was important to put down this marker for some reason. And I think you're right that that probably suggests some degree of, of insecurity on his part, whether you know that's founded or, or otherwise. I mean, we know that Putin is a very insecure individual. Um, yeah, what jumped out at me is that it made me think back to the 90s when Russian leaders like wanted the endorsement of the Western countries, right? Now they clearly don't care about that, but the fact they're doing the exact same thing with China. Let's bring Max in here because, Max, you've got experience dealing with things like this in your time in government. How, what were your takeaways and any reaction to what Jeff or I have said? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with uh, a lot of what you're saying, which is, may, not, may or may not be interesting to the, the listener. I guess the one maybe area where I don't even know if I'd quibble, but I think it's more uh, the characterization of Russia as a vassal to China, which um, um, is where I'm, I struggle with a little bit. Because mm -hmm. I, I think what we've seen here is that kind of a shift in Russian dependence, uh, quote unquote. So Russia uh, was essentially dependent on selling its energy resources to Europe, uh, dependent on importing European and Western uh, advanced machine tools and, and electronics and, and other items. 
in what we're seeing and was sort of dependent on the, the Western financial system as well. Um, and, and dependent, maybe not the right word, but that's where it was leaning. And one of the things that we've seen with the effect of sanctions, which I think Putin very much uh, underestimated, um, is that Russia can't is now locked out. So when you're locked out of something, when you're sort of being shut out of now the European Western market, when uh, you can no longer kind of be dependent on the Western financial system, you then turn to whatever whatever avenue is available. And China is a very attractive avenue. And I think the Chinese here are you know very open to uh, getting additional business. Uh, and to supporting Russia, at least in this way, economically, and not adhering uh, to Western sanctions. Where I, so that points to becoming more uh, somewhat of a vassal, where I would sort of quibble with it. I think the Kremlin, over the last year, and this is just pure me positing without, uh, with, without seeing any real evidence of this from, from any comments or anything. Uh, but I would imagine that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin were very annoyed over the last year at the lack of real significant tangible support from uh, Xi Jinping, from China. Uh, I mean, there has been uh, increase in trade. China has sort of approached the line in, in violating sanctions, probably have violated them in a number of ways. As Jeff mentioned, we've seen there's now reports of some weapons uh, starting to flow through indirect channels, but probably very minimal. But for a, a partnership with no limits, you know, you would expect that they're in for us, that this is our ally and partner, that this is where, you know, when the chips are down, they're coming, you know, and they're going to provide our backs. When, you know, we in, I think in the United States, think of an ally and partner, it's when something really bad happens, we're, you know, our allies are there for us. So I don't necessarily think, you know, let's say there's a war with Taiwan tomorrow, or, or in five years, this war uh, in Ukraine has subsided or ended. Does Russia then come, you know, in its defense industries back up to production? The Chinese call. I mean, my guess is Putin's like there's an opportunity to sell, but I don't think there's a great alliance relationship. And this is where I think autocratic states make fairly bad allies. Mm -hmm. um, but but I think to the larger point that your point about the body language, the point about the endorsement of 2024. Putin is desperate for, you know, what she could offer was a, a lifeline out of international isolation economically and then also diplomatically, uh, especially after being, as you noted, Brian, um, you know, uh, 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 a warrant for his arrest by The Hague right. uh, as, as a war criminal. And then here's, you know, one of the most powerful countries in the world, uh, China coming to Moscow. So that was sort of an endorsement of, of Putin will be very helpful, I think, for Russia's foreign policy in general, send a signal to many countries that are on the fence. So he got something from this, a lot from this. Um, and I think we'll have to wait and see on the weapons. But it, and, if, and if the weapons don't come, though, I mean, that strikes me as the thing that they would have really been asking for mm -hmm. uh, as we're seeing outdated weaponry like T-55 tanks start flowing uh, into, the, into the war in Ukraine. Jeff, would you agree that the, maybe I'm overstating this this junior partner vassal thing? Because that's what I see. Russia can't stand alone, right? We got a country with the economy smaller than the state of Texas, taking nothing away from the great state of Texas, right? But this is not a major world economy. Mm -hmm. Russia can't stand alone. It needs yeah. either the West or China. And, and in this case, it can't go to the West. So it's dependent on China. That makes it a junior partner. Am I overstating that? I, I'm maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but I, I guess I tend to think of the concepts of junior partner and vassal as being slightly different. Um, a junior a partnership is is a partnership, even if it's an unequal one. And I think that's very much where where Russia is right now. It's a junior partner that's becoming more junior based on the things that that you've been talking about. I think a vassal sort of implies that um, it's a state that has extremely no limited sovereignty, yeah, or agency. And I don't think that that's the case. Right, no, that, yeah, of, fair enough. All fair, fair point. I don't think the Chinese want to see this war go on. Um, you know, we can talk about the the Chinese, you know, quote unquote, peace plan. But I, at the end of the day, I mean, I think the further dragging on of this war doesn't really benefit China and all else being equal, they would like to see it over with, but they're not, 
going to force, they're not in a position to force Russia to, to end it. So in that sense, I think Russia does continue to have uh, strategic autonomy, in, including in, in ways that China dislikes. Now, that said, if we look at some of the things that came out of the summit, I mean, one of the things in the communique that struck me was they talked about AUKUS. And they said, uh, you know, they thought AUKUS was a bad idea and it was destabilizing and, and all the rest. I mean, Russia, for the most part, has tried to stay out of these kind of disputes among China and its maritime neighbors, right? I mean, on the on the South China Sea stuff, uh, Russia's got a pretty solid relationship with Vietnam, and it has tried to thread that needle for a long time by, you know, endorsing that the, the regional powers work out their differences among themselves, but not necessarily taking Chinese China's side on the substance of the issue. But here, you know, in a summit that was ostensibly focused on the war in Ukraine, they decided to mention that they thought the AUKUS agreement was a bad idea and that the sales of American submarines was a bad idea. So that clearly was not something that is right. a big priority for Russia. While speaking um, very little about Ukraine, by the way. Yeah, in the Cuban, but, in the so that, yeah and, and in much more general terms. So, you know, this is clearly something that the Chinese side wanted. And, you know, the Russians are, are willing to go there. So I think in that sense, you know, that they, they are starting to see some constraints on their autonomy. And, you know, we'll see sort of, for instance, how their relationship with Vietnam develops over the, the coming years. But I, I, I wouldn't quite go so far as to use the term vassal. Right. Okay. No, that, that that's fair enough. I was using them interchangeably and there is a semantic difference there. <clears throat> I do want to dive into Xi's, Xi's uh, peace plan, and I also want to dive into the, the Japanese prime minister's visit to, to Kiev. Um, but before I do that, I do want to stick with this junior partner thing for a moment, because I think we're all in agreement that Russia is the junior partner in this, in this relationship. Um, Russia doesn't like to be anybody's junior partner. They didn't like being the West's junior partner, and I would imagine over time they are not going to like being China's junior partner. Right. Um, there is a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in the Russian Far East. Um, now, is this a wedge that the West can exploit? Is this a potential wedge that the West can and should exploit um, over time? Because China basically has more of an interest in playing the role of a status quo power. They just want to adjust the status quo a little bit. Russia wants to blow it up. Max, what what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I you know, I think I, I, I totally agree that I think Russia um, – will chafe at the notion of being a, a, a junior partner. We did a, a study at CSIS that we came out in December that was based that we looked at a lot of sort of Russian and Chinese literature uh, in kind of very sort of wonky security areas like space and, and arms sales and defense cooperation. And it was it, what was interesting was done pre-war. So it was pre-February 2022, all these writings that had come out. Uh, and you know, what you see is like, you know, a degree of skepticism on both sides of the other's intent, a general lack of trust, a recognition that there needs that we need, you know, there's a alignment of interest can work more closely together, both Beijing and Moscow. But, you know, some friction there. Now that that's true in sort of all partnerships, all alliances, you know, we have it with the French and, and others. But, um, but there was, there's, you know, you know, this is also two, you know, two countries that share a history, have a shared border. So, I, and I, I think there's a degree of um, potential distrust. There's also latent racism in, mm -hmm. in, in both countries, but toward the toward each other, um, which I think culturally will may get in the way of like you know a grand warming of relations. Um, but I, you know, I'm skeptical right now that the West has the means to really create significant wedges between uh, Russia and China, uh, and especially as long as the, the Putin regime remains. You know, I think if Putin's not there, this is part of the reason why I think the, the uh, argument about wedging Russia and China makes sense if, if Ukraine is victorious on the battlefield and there's real uh, shifts in, in Moscow, then that is the geopolitical shift that could really happen. But the one thing I would just say is that I do think that the Chinese have a, I think, a false notion that we can play on, that the Europeans are potentially gettable, <laughs> or, or that there's a real wedge between us and Europe, and that the Europeans are, are, you know, don't really want to follow America into kind of a new Cold War with China, which in some ways is true, 
but in in you know from my engagement with the Europeans, there's re actually real alignment on on a lot of things China, uh, but it's not the worst thing in the world for the Chinese to have that uh, uh, notion that uh, that you know that if they play nice with the Europeans, that they could create a wedge, because what that does is create a, another deterrent or it deters China or makes China less willing, I think, to provide weapons to Russia. Because that is going to be that would be the game a game changer in this war if they start providing 155 millimeter ammunition or um, you know start resupplying Russia. Um, if the Chinese know that that will lead to uh, you know that will forever damage their relations with Europe and it will be the Europeans will flip from being somewhat gettable to as hawkish as the Americans, which I actually think would be the case. I think that's if, possible. If China is fueling a war that is undermining European security, that is killing Ukrainians, I think that the European reaction would be quite strong. Um, so I think it's good that actually, you know, from a Ukrainian perspective, that uh, Emmanuel Macron is going to Beijing, that, you know, Spanish leaders are heading, and that there's, you know, create the sense in Beijing that there's still you know, a, a path forward there for productive relations, because there might be. And and that is, I think, enough, that can create enough of a wedge where China isn't really providing Russia with the tangible support, tan tangible military support that it's desperate for right now. Yeah, and I think that is the main, Max, I think you hit on what is deterring China right now. And I think uh, this is why one of the reasons, not the only reason why uh, she has allegedly warned Putin not to, not to use nukes. Um, yep. Because I think China, they, they are terrified of losing uh, losing Europe um, and losing those markets. Jeff, would you concur in this? You you wrote the book about uh, how Russian and China's imperial legacies, among other countries, drive their foreign policies. Do you, do, do you see their, them clashing and can we exploit it, exploit it? I mean, I agree with Max that as long as Putin's in power, that's extremely unlikely. Uh, and this isn't just since the war started, but going back quite a while, I think Putin and the securocrats, to maybe coin a word, uh, around him have viewed the U.S. and the West more broadly as a much more dangerous rival than China because we don't recognize the legitimacy of the regime. Uh, and if that were fungible at some point, I think the, the ICC uh, indictment basically puts paid to the notion that there's right. ever going to be an ability to regard the Putin regime as, as legitimate. So as long as Putin's in power, I don't think there's any... Oh, I don't think we can peel Russia off. I think that's no. not wise at all. But, but I think yeah. we can peel China off, maybe. Well, but and so, and th this is the other side of it, is that uh, we were there with Russia before we were there with China. I think, unfortunately, the consensus in Washington over the last several years, and this goes back really to the Trump administration, but I think has continued throughout the Biden administration, has been almost equally hawkish on China. Now, we don't openly talk about regime change in China, apart, you know, maybe from a few uber hawks on, on Capitol Hill. But I think there's a similar sense, and, you know, we see this playing out right now in the, the fight over TikTok, of all things. But there's just very little sort of willingness to adopt a kind of greater flexibility when it comes to dealing with China. And I think as part of this, there's also the acknowledgement that over time, China is a much bigger problem than Russia. And so I think if that's the case, our approach is not going to be one that focuses on trying to peel China away because China is the problem that we see ourselves as trying to deal with. Right, right. Uh, you know, if there was some flexibility in terms of how we could approach Russia, I think you could see efforts like we saw during the Trump administration to try and peel Russia off. Yeah, but that that's, has been that's foolish. Much I think that's absolutely foolish. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes me wonder if we're headed towards, you know, to cite old school geopolitical theory, Mackinder's nightmare, right? One power controlling the Eurasian landmass and that and, and that power being China, um, but we seem to think that due to the due to the clashing interests of Russia and China, that's that's highly unlikely. I wanted to go, but Max, you brought up Xi's peace, so-called peace plan, which, interesting enough, Putin didn't even endorse this very lame peace plan that 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 favors Russia. What is Xi's calculus right now? What's Xi trying to do, and what's Putin trying to do? How do you see their the the the, the their their approaches to this right now, and where they would like to see this go? Well. You know, in some ways, I, I guess the way I see Xi, and you know, I'm not necessarily, I'm not a, a, a China uh, expert. Jeff, Jeff uh, has the most China expertise yeah. here, <laughs> I, I, which isn't saying you know, much. Yeah, 
But I, I do think, maybe to just go back to your last point, Brian, and then connect it to this. I think what we've seen here is a Washington, a very Washington conversation when it comes to China and mm-hmm. Taiwan. This will tie back that, you know, China, we, there was a, a, an important point, uh, important recognition that China, Chinese rhetoric about Taiwan was we needed to take it seriously and not just view it as as posturing. That China was actually seriously think is seriously considering thinking about uh, trying to reincorporate Taiwan. It's it ha- wants to do that, and that recognition accelerated in Washington blob warp speed to <laughs> China is go China is thinking about invading you know th- thinking about incorporating ta- Taiwan. To China has decided to do it. To it's going to happen within five years. To it's going to happen within two years. To it's mm-hmm. going to happen tomorrow, and. That is, you know, how things oftentimes work in Washington when you're trying to get budgets and when you're trying to argue in certain directions. And then when military officers are like, well, we're trying to plan and, you know, prepare for this and and they get, you know, focused on it. But that has led to, I think, this, in some ways, contradictory view of Chinese, uh, of, of China, of China's behavior, where on the one hand, you could view China as a sort of reckless power that may do this really reckless thing akin to what we have seen with Putin do in Ukraine. And it sort of belies what we see is a lot of caution. Uh, and China wanting to shift the global order in its direction, but do so through uh, through tilting countries in its mm-hmm. way. And this is where in Russia, it, you know, it could shift the balance of this war, gain you know, huge support from Russia, send a message to the rest of the world that we're going to back our allies, our allies and partners. We're going to provide Russia with weaponry. And yet it's refusing to do so. It's kind of adhering to a lot of the sanctions. It's not, you know, it's. And so I think when I what, the way I see this peace plan is what China is trying to do is views itself in a global competition with the United States uh, and is trying to say that it's the sort of responsible one for peace. The American warmongers are providing all these weapons to Ukraine you know, this is sort of a weird white man's fight in 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 Europe, you know, to the global south, and like we're sort of out of it. But you know, we're right. trying to get involved and demonstrate that these sort of hawkish Americans are out, are again sort of out of control. We can uh, resolve things. Look what we just did between the Iranians and the Saudis. Right. You know, w- look at what we're doing around the world. We're big and powerful and responsible and caught and sort of cautious. So. Uh, you know, and I, I think that that is what China is trying to do. My fear, and this is where, you know, they're not going to put in a statement that they're providing weapons to to Russia. Right. So we still have to watch that very mm-hmm. closely to make sure there's like not North Korea secret, or something. Yeah, there's all sorts there's not of some secret side deal about how they're going to be providing and, you know, pipelines will be built in exchange for, you know, any yeah, weapons. And there's no, his, there's no history of secret side deals between, like, Russian leaders and other dictators. Right? Oh, oh, no, that never, that never <laughs> happened. That never happened. <laughs> that never happened. But, but I generally think this is, you know, the peace plan is about a cautious a signaling that China is this responsible player. And they don't want to, I think, do anything to really upset that. And this visit is not actually upsetting that kind of broader global image that China is trying to cultivate. Right. And they're both trying to where they do share. They want to put together this this anti-Western global coalition that it, that is you know dependent mo- mostly on the global south. Uh, they, they both want to lead it. Um, but I think it's clear that China is going to be the one that leads it. Jeff, any thoughts on this before I move to quickly to the Japanese pr- prime minister's visit to Kiev? Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I think the, the main audience for the, you know, quote unquote, peace plan, and I, I keep saying quote unquote, because I don't think it really was a peace plan. It was a non-starter. It was, uh... it, well, it was a, a declaration of principles, some of which are completely non-acceptable to one of the sides. Um, although, interestingly, the, the proposal itself did talk about territorial integrity, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you actually follow it to its logical conclusion, means that Russia gives back the occupied territories in Ukraine. But leaving that aside, I, I think the audience was not Ukraine. It's not the West. It was the global Soviet and other countries that have taken a kind of ambiguous position on the war, um, including some close U.S. partners, uh, you know, countries like India, uh, Brazil, uh, mm-hmm. and South other. Africa. Yeah. 
who I think as Max said, see this as somebody else's fight, uh, are worried about the implications for their own economy, are worried about global instability more broadly, and are worried that their concerns globally are going to be left uh, to the side while the West sort of fights it out over uh, a part of the world that has little direct implicate little direct impact on their own lives. So this is kind of China getting up there and saying, you know, we want to see peace. We have a vision for what peace looks like. We're not the irresponsible warmongers. Um, and if you fall in with this more Sinocentric vision of, of what the world looks like, this is the kind of approach that you can expect. It's one that's going to be based on, you know, these grand principles, the, you know, community of the common destiny of mankind mm -hmm. and win-win uh, cooperation and, and all of these things. Um, and so, I mean, I think from that perspective, it it's, was largely successful. And again, mm -hmm. I think the fact that it comes in train with the the Saudi uh, Iranian deal is right. significant, which suggests that China is is starting to play a a larger global brokering role and sort right. of sees its its role on the global stage as being a power that can broker deals um, in a sort of non-block way, which is another thing that was criticized at the the right. Xi Putin meeting, um, and that it's more consensual, it's more focused on building rapport and finding agreement and bringing people together and, and doing all of these things that allegedly the West has not been very good at. Right. You know, and, and, and I mean, my, another takeaway on this is that this thing was high on symbolism, high on optics, but very low on substance, but that symbolism and optics actually matter. Uh, before we shift into the second ra second half and talk about the, the the war crimes indictment, I did want to mention Japanese Prime Minister uh, Fumio Kishida's visit to Kiev. A surprise visit, kind of stole a little leg up on Xi and Putin there. Um, promised a large economic aid package to Ukraine, and this got me thinking. Like the it's it's almost like the Ukraine war is is global now, in 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 one sense at least, um, where you have the two most important powers in Asia, basically on opposite sides of this. Um, and it made me start to think also is, you know, we we are clearly headed to um, two separate half global economies right now in the world. Um, so thoughts on thoughts on the Japanese prime minister's visit to Kiev and what 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 that signifies, Max? Well, I think for Japan, um, you know, the war has a, been a bit of wake up call as well, that conventional war uh, is a real possibility. The Japanese obviously have been quite concerned about uh about China's military expansion uh, over the last decade. Uh, there's lots of, you know, air incidents um, there are. Uh, and uh, and I think from a from sort of, if you look at this from sort of a narrow, uh, realist kind of Japanese lens, they want, uh, th they view this, their support for Ukraine as in some ways uh, an advance that by by supporting Europe and European security, uh, in Ukraine, that if if the if they have an incident, if there's something happening with China or their security is threatened, that Europe will be there for them right. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I think that's important. In whether that you know that's just instrumental logic that still is useful because uh, by taking this action, it, it does create a, se a sense of uh, uh, um, amongst the Europeans that they will also need to to react. To uh, to something that happens to Japan and Japanese and Korean and and Australian and, and New Zealand leaders going to the NATO summit as they did uh, last year, uh, the increasing in expansion of ties between um, uh, Europe and Asia, and we see this on the military side, particularly Poland buying you know Korean tanks and fighter jets. Mm -hmm. I think is actually very good for the United States. The United States wants its its allies and partners to cooperate together and for it to not everything to have to come. Through us, um, so that's the the instrumental side. But there is a values-based thing here, where the Japanese, I think, you know, are you know the the rhetoric of the West and Japan is included in that kind of right. using Western, not as a geographical term, right? Uh, as as sort of an alliance of democracies in fear the expansion of autocratic authoritarianism, and if a country can get away with invading and occupying a neighbor, that is a real security concern to them. And so those principles of international law, uh, of international order, of democracy, all matter as well. Uh, and so, you know, I think all of that comes to play in the actions that we've seen, not just from Japan, but from other uh, right. Asian allies, whether it's the Australians or the Koreans or others. 
be nice if we can get the Indians on board, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, your, your your thoughts on Prime Minister Kashida's visit to Kiev? Yeah, as the, they would have said back in the Soviet Union, it was not accidental with the timing. Um, I do think it was very much a way to try and steal a little bit of the thunder of, of Xi going to Moscow. But um, yeah, I, I think it's also, I mean, it, it's one, uh, a down payment on the Europeans, but also the the Americans, because we do have this debate in the United States about how much we should be engaged and committed to projecting power overseas. And of course, we have an election in 2024, and who knows what's going to happen. But it, it, in some ways, I think for Kashida and, and, and for Japan, a visit like this is a down payment on the idea that we're all in this together, that this is a common struggle, and that just as we're committed to uh, providing assistance to Ukraine and to uh, some of the vulnerable allies in Europe. Uh, we would like to make sure that Europeans and the Americans, regardless of who's in power after 2024, will remain committed to our own security. And I think that that's a calculation that not just Japan, but the other Asian allies are, are making as well. Um, and I agree with Max that there is a kind of larger argument around principle here. Um, and it's about democracy, but it's also about, you know, some of the basic principles of global order as it's existed since the end of World War II, uh, of which Japan has been one of the big beneficiaries against, you know, territorial integrity, uh, non-interference, sovereignty, sort of all of these things. And that's really what Russia and uh, China, and Russia in particular, but I think, you know, there are concerns uh, around China as well that, that, that they're threatening. Um, and to the extent that we see China and Russia as moving closer together and presenting this kind of unified front, um, I think it's natural that you have this kind of counter reaction in the, you know, the maritime periphery or whatever you want to call it, you know, McKinder's uh, rimland of the, you know, the Europeans and the Americans and the and maritime Asia, you know, coming together to sort of see that they're all in this together as well and that they have this common interest mm. in trying to to push back against this kind of consolidation of, of autocratic uh, power at the center of Eurasia. And no, just it, really quickly on India, I mean, I think India is, is kind of fascinating on this because it's trying to play multiple sides, but, you know, it, it has very different views of China and of Russia, right. uh, which makes it a little bit unique in this yep. dynamic. It's hawkish on China and dovish on Russia, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one, I would say that um, the United States has been making a more assertive play for cooperation with India in the last couple of years, in part to try and peel it away from Russia, but in part also to recruit it to play a more active role in any potential, excuse me, contingency involving China. We saw press reports recently about uh, India's uh, victory over uh, Chinese incursion across the line of control. Uh, in the Himalayas a couple of years ago, being facilitated by the direct provision of U.S. tactical intelligence. Um, and that was really uh, a major step, uh, at least based on what we know in, in kind of public domain, uh, about the extent to which the U.S. is willing to go in terms of directly aiding uh, India with sensitive intelligence uh, and coordinating with the Indian military against this kind of Chinese uh, you know, power projection. And so I think that's part of this, too. And I think what we're going to see is, you know, these more sort of assertive attempts to try and, you know, pull India closer yeah. in. And, and, and the Quad is a, a good example of that. But of course, you know, that's not about Russia. Right. Um, and so when it comes to dealing with Russia, I think this is going to be more of a challenge. And as these, you know, as this broader sort of pan-Eurasian, you know, heartland versus rimland, whatever you want to call it, competition, accelerates, if that's what we see happening, and I, I kind of do see that happening, you know, how India plays this is going to be one of the real critical variables, yeah. because it does have these multiple vectors. It's one of the linchpins, and uh, we're not going to get India fully on our side if we do, if we continue selling arms to Pakistan. That's a big sticking point in that relationship. It's a good place to shift gears. I'd also want to mention, uh, before we do, that this visit by Prime Minister Kashida, first time, if I'm not mistaken, a Japanese Prime Minister has visited an active war zone since the end of the Second World War. 
1945. Um, so in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the International Criminal Court's indictment of Vladimir Putin for war crimes and what it means going forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown Washington, D.C. is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Also joining us from downtown D.C. is the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of their recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I'd also like to add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the MDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. The International Criminal Court has issued two warrants of arrest in the Ukraine situation. For Vladimir Putin, President of the Russian Federation, and for Maria Lvovabelova, Commissioner of the Russian President for Children's Rights, for the alleged war crimes of deportation of children from Ukrainian occupied territories into the Russian Federation. We've been expecting it for a while, and late last week it finally happened. On March 17th, the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Belova, his commissioner for children's rights, for the unlawful transfer of Ukrainian children to, into Russia, which is just a polite way of saying kidnapping. Uh, Russia reacted to this news by opening a criminal case of its own against the judges on the International Criminal Court, so there's that. Um, there are two aspects of this I wanted to dive into. First, the effect of the indictment itself on Putin's power, prestige, and ability to govern, as well as on the war. And second, shining a light on this issue of kidnapping Ukrainian children who are reportedly being subject to re-education in Russia and are being put up for adoption to Russian families. Jeff, what was your reaction to this indictment itself? Were you surprised, and what effect do you think it'll have? I was a little surprised because the ICC has... It has a mixed track record, but I think there's a, a fundamental difference between issuing an indictment against, say, Slobodan Milosevic or uh, Muammar Gaddafi on the one hand and a Vladimir Putin on the other. Uh, one of them has nuclear weapons. Uh, one of them is the, the president of, of a major power. Um, and so in some ways, I see this as a real uh, victory for the ICC. Uh, which has been embattled for various reasons uh, in recent years. Uh, I also see it as kind of crossing a Rubicon. Uh, I think it does mean that there is not really any way back uh, for Putin's Russia now. Um, as, as long as Putin remains in power, um, I think Russia is going to be a pariah, uh, regardless of what happens in Ukraine or for how long it goes on. Um, and it also means that I think Putin, as distinct from Russia, can't risk stepping back uh, because I think his hold on power is subject to a lot of question if he's seen as failing in Ukraine. And if his hold in power is in question, that means it's whoever, is, question. Yeah, whoever is challenging him has a very good incentive to put him on a, a quick plane to The Hague to you know, find some way of patching things up and getting Russia back into the good graces of Western markets, making Russia, you know, in some ways clubbable again. Uh, so this is a, it's a big step. And I think we haven't entirely internalized uh, just how big it is as far as, you know, kind of cementing the, the break uh, between Putin's Russia, at least, and the sort of civilized world. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you. I think this, as, as President Biden may say, it's a big expletive deleted deal. Um, I mean, it severely hinders Putin's ability to travel. Um, one thing I'm going to be keeping an eye on is the BRICS summit in South Africa in August. Uh, South Africa's a signatory to the ICC. 
Is Putin going to go to the BRICS summit? Are the South Africans going to arrest him? Didn't, didn't Bashir go to South Africa after he was indicted? He may have. He may have. Um, but, this, but I mean, if you look at the you know the formalities of it, South Africa is a signatory. Yeah. Putin's on South African territory. Uh, is he? Does he go to BRICS? Does he risk it? Um, that's a good. It's, it's a good question. Max, what's your reaction to to, to, to this indictment? Well, I, I I think the fact that that becomes a real question of if you go to South Africa, does Putin get indicted um, or arrested? I think is. The mere fact that that question would have to be asked and sorted out by, um, by you know, Russian uh, you know ad- advance uh, ahead of his visit, right. I think is I think is really significant. And then, you know, and then are they being serious? Are they are we could we be duped here? Uh, it, it becomes I think I think I think that makes it a big deal. And you look mm-hmm. at you. I think it's also a big deal for the credibility of the ICC as well, and I agree with everything that sort of Jeff outlined. You know, the critique of the International Criminal Court for a long time was, you know, that this is essentially a vehicle used by, you know, the West, Europe, the United States in particular, to go after um, the Global South and leaders in the Global South or individuals in the Global South, and there was this accusation of racism against it. Well, here is, you know, one of the preeminent powers of the world being um, uh, being indicted. Uh, and I think that's I think it's really significant. I think it's another blow to Russia as um, uh, 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 Russia's efforts to sort of try to normalize itself after this war, where I think you you know, you could have definitely concocted a scenario. The war grinds down five years from now. You know, things have sort of settled down. And Putin's going to be back at the G20 or, you know, traveling to a Western European country. It can't happen now. He can't go to a Western European country. It won't happen. Um, and so I think it puts a real limitation on uh, on Russia's future normalization with Putin in power. Uh, I think it adds pressure uh, on, uh, with, on Putin internally, potentially, that Russia can't be a normal, respected country as long as he is there. Uh, and that, I think, is is very, very significant. I also think it will send a message to other, you know, let's say the Olympics or other uh, international uh, bodies that are thinking about trying to bring Russia back in or or not kick Russia out. Well, the leader of Russia has been is now, you know, indicted uh, as as a war criminal. So that, I think, creates a, a momentum to maintain the isolation that has been established. Now, you know, there's a question of, let's say there's peace negotiate, negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians. This is desired by both sides. I think one demand by Putin will be to meet with the president of the United States. And will the president of the United States, whether it's Biden or whoever, meet with an indicted, you know, pretend, you know, war criminal? The optics of that will be terrible, but, yeah. you know, that's the sort of thing that you may, might have to do if you're in the United States. If you're if there's a peace agreement that Ukraine supports, right? So, the only argument that would I could see against it would be that oh well, this could complicate future peace negotiations. But I think that's something that we'll, we can cross that bridge whenever we get there. Yeah, no, I I mean I what I like about this is it it, it I hope it puts a damper on this talk that we need to negotiate now because the negotiating now means Ukraine giving up significant parts of its territory which we don't want to reward reward this aggression so that that should slam the door on that. For the yeah, I, I think stated, it stated Max. I think it I think it slams the door on any sort of potential premature negotiations that would be pushed right I, and that negotiations will happen if the Ukrainians then want them to happen right. Um, and I, I think that's been the case, frankly, uh, for a long time. But it really does, I think, I think cement that. Uh, so th- I think it's a really important step. Every, you know, it's big deal. People are talking about it. It will be something, a badge that, you know, Putin will have to carry with him uh, for the rest of his life. And I think that that matters. And this will not be the last indictment. I was actually, um, I want to move to the issue of the kidnapped children. I mean, it's interesting to me that this was the first indictment to come down. My understanding is more are probably on the way, uh, certainly for violation of the laws and customs of war um, and possibly even for genocide. Um, so, um, but moving to the issue of the kidnapped children, this, in, for me, this has been an issue 
that's not getting nearly enough attention. Um, this is horrific. This is one of the more odious things happening in this war, and that's a pretty damn high bar. Do you think, Jeff, that this indictment is going to change that and bring attention to this issue of these these children who are basically some of them are my understanding is some of them are orphans. Some of them have been separated from their parents, kidnapped, brought into Russia, reeducated and then put up for adoption. Um, is this is this going to bring more attention to this issue? It might. Uh, this is an issue that's been in, in the press for a while, at least among the people who are following the conflict, how much it breaks out beyond that and becomes more of a, a kind of mainstream story. You know, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I do think it's important, though, because of the precedent that it sets. You know, we tend to think of the crime of genocide in the context of what we saw in, in the Holocaust during World War II or you know, what the uh, the Serbs were doing in, in Kosovo in, in the 1990s, where, you know, it was mostly on the physical eradication of, of people and, and cultural monuments. But the way that the genocide statute is written is it's much broader than that. It's about trying to uh, destroy the existence of a people or a culture, right? And there are lots of different ways that you can do that. And part of it, one way you can do that is uprooting children or others whose culture cultural identity is still in formation and educating them and acculturating them to be something else. Uh, and this is not something that's happening for the first time in the occupied territories of Ukraine, but I think it's happening in a more comprehensive way, in part because the closeness between Russians and Ukrainians make culturally makes this more feasible. But I think the fact that this was, in addition to Putin, that uh, Lvova Belova was the first person to be sort of indicted does kind of point a spotlight on this particular yeah. issue in a way that's going to resonate, maybe not in the press, but in terms of how, you know, sort of future conflicts are dealt with in terms of how the, the concept of genocide is thought about going forward. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, Jeff. I hadn't thought about that, that this could be kind of the first step towards prepping a genocide indictment. Um, down, 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 down the road, and that, and if this makes it difficult for any U.S. president or any Western leader to meet with Putin, uh, a genocide indictment would certainly uh, slam the door on that. Max, well, your thoughts on this? On yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's a really important indictment in that it's shining a spotlight on this what is a really critical and tragic issue of, of. Uh, uh, the deportations of Ukrainian children, and as Jeff mentioned, trying to sort of wipe out their kind of opinions of, of Ukraine. Um, it's really tragic. I think the other really important effect of this, though, is it hopefully sends a message down the, the bureaucracy within the Kremlin that, you know, you start implementing orders on behalf of this guy that are clearly, um, you know, egregious. Uh, and you know, violate human rights, violate the laws of war. Uh, then you know you're stuck in Russia the rest of your life, and you better hope that the regime doesn't change over, because uh, right. and, and it's so it's not even that you're stuck in Russia that you're stuck with Putin. Um, and so I I, and I I think it's it's that sort of uh, message that is important to send uh, to frankly deter war crimes from happening. Uh, and uh, and that you know, and I think this is not just the the work of the ICC, but others, you know, the OSINT um, uh, uh, experts that and the other journalists that have documented the massacres at Bucha and other uh, other places. We're then trying to identify what units were responsible. You know, mm -hmm. who did this? Uh, and then the fact that you know we can uh, that we can tell, and the Ukrainians have been keeping track. Hopefully deters that sort of uh, action by future Russian forces and, and saves lives in that sense. Um, and so I think you're you know, both trying to send a message to those in the elite, those that are implementing orders that you're not safe. Uh, and then hopefully that, um, A, leads to further disaffection down the road internally, but also leads them to think twice uh, if trying, if they're given an order or, have, or, right. or you know, may uh, conduct further war crimes. I was going to say, I mean, one of the key principles of war crimes jurisprudence historically has been that following orders is not a defense. Uh, so if we're setting a precedent here by, you know, charging people who are implementing some of these uh, 
criminal policies, then, you know, I, I do think that sends a message to others who are, you know, in the position of making a decision, do they go down this road of, of following criminal orders or not, knowing that they can be held accountable for them down the road. Right. I'm keeping a close eye on the clock. We don't have much time left, but there is one other aspect of this I wanted to briefly touch on before we wrap up, and that is, you know, Putin does want to create this uh, anti-Western co coalition um, with the global South, um, and it, it's it's it seems to be a preoccupation of his right now. Does this hinder his ability to do that, both in his ability to travel to these countries, right? Because much of Africa, much of the global South, are signatories to the ICC, right? Um, so it's not just Europe he can't go to. It's large, it's parts of Africa and Asia and and and, and, and elsewhere, um, in terms of his ability to travel and in terms of his own personal prestige um, among the global South. How do how do you see that, Max? I mean, I think it, I think it will uh, it definitely hinder. Um, and the question is how much, right? I, I think it will hinder Putin's ability to travel. I think there's gonna be a lot of reticence to go to. South Africa, to go to Brazil, to go to other BRICS countries that are sign signatories. China is not uh, a signatory. So I think this this will be a, a, a deterrent. I think it also sends the message to, I think, the global south that have been more focused on the ICC than probably we have in the United States. Mm -hmm. That like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, this is actually a fairly big deal. And they can point to some equivalency here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that sense, I think it is a, a blow to prestige. As I mentioned, I think it might uh, help further isolate Russia in, in other venues and prompt no leader is going to really want to, you know, if you're the head of FIFA, are you going to want to go and have a, you know, uh, well, maybe FIFA um, would be well, like, maybe, maybe FIFA. But, <laughs> um, but I, I think I think that's going to create this sort of general sense of deterrence. It's a black mark. It is a stain. It is a scarlet letter. On uh, on Putin's lapel that he's going to have to walk around with for the rest of his days, and what it does is it means that if Russia if Russians want to be uh, a respected country in the world, then Vladimir Putin can't be their leader, mm -hmm. and that is not you know that's going to gnaw that's going to mm -hmm. be there. Now it's impossible, you know. It's not a decisive blow. It's not going to you know this isn't the thing that brings down the Kremlin. But the way, you know, the way the West in the United States and Europe and others have been pursuing this is that you're trying to degrade the resilience of this regime. And this is another mark that does, I think, degrade Putin's internal resilience. Jeff, last word this week goes to you. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's striking that for Putin, who has for so long made achieving respect on the global stage be one of the basic principles of his approach to diplomacy and foreign policy, that with this indictment, as Max said, this makes it effectively impossible for him to do that. If anything, it cements his status as a pariah among a huge swath of the global community. And even among countries that haven't necessarily signed on to the ICC convention, I think there's enough reputational cost that's going to be associated with having anything to do with Putin, that he's going to be less uh, in demand, perhaps, as it were, and he's going to be less welcomed uh, than would have been the case otherwise. I think we shouldn't necessarily overstate this. I mean, again, we have the example of Bashir, who, after he was indicted by the ICC, remained in power for a while, traveled around, including, as far as I remember, to South Africa. So. You know, it, it it's not going to be decisive. It's not going to be the you know the nail in the coffin necessarily, but it's another you know brick on the camel's or another piece of straw maybe on the the camel's back that's sort of building up the pressure on this regime. And I think, as I said before, it really does mark um, a a decisive break uh, between Russia and the sort of civilized world that's not going to be repaired uh, no matter what, as long as Vladimir Putin remains in power. No, I like the way Max put it. It degrades the resilience of the regime. That's a very good way to put it. I may steal that. Um, and on that note, we will wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown Washington has been former U.S. State Department official Max Burke 
Cochran, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And also joining us from downtown D.C. has been the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Gentlemen, thank you for making us all a lot smarter and for an enlightening discussion. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Yeah. Good to be here, Brian. So, good to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to Power of the Podcast on, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 